Welcome to the Holden Village Podcast. Holden is a community of education, programming, and worship located in the remote wilderness of the Cascade Mountains. These snapshots provide a glimpse into the learnings taking place in our community. Let's tune in to this week's highlight. Hi, I'm Dan Castillo. I am an assistant professor of theology at Loyola University, Maryland in Baltimore. My work is in liberation theology and environmental ethics, really the cross-section between the two. One way to understand that, if those terms kind of seem a little abstract to you, is my work looks at, considers the relationship between the cries of the earth and poor as they exist in our world, and what it means to be Christian and living in response to those cries. So how, what does discipleship look like in a world where the cry of the earth and poor are interrelated and becoming more and more pressing? I got interested in this work as a Jesuit volunteer in St. Louis uh, in 2002-2003, lived in community there, and taught in East St. Louis, so across the Mississippi River. I taught in an alternative high school there, taught history, and really, while I was there, I, I was there for two years, became aware firsthand, in a sense, of the, the realities of environmental racism. East St. Louis is 99.5% Black and uh, the population. When you would look around it, you'd see Pfizer plants on one side and Monsanto's plants on the other side, and they were all polluting in the center. And many, many of my students had chronic illnesses at the age of 15, 16, certainly more so than I had ever been aware of students in classes when I was growing up uh, in Miami. So that's, that's how I came to begin to kind of think about the relationship between the, the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor and the marginalized. And really those questions became theological questions for me, um, or really were from the beginning theological questions. I said, as I just mentioned, I was a Jesuit volunteer um, in St. Louis for the first of those two years, second year, I lived at a Catholic worker house while teaching. And it was actually in that uh, Jesuit volunteer community, it was in that Jesuit volunteer community that I first became aware of Holden, Holden Village, because as fate would have it, two of the four community members that, that lived there had been to Holden independently of each other the summer before. And when they found this out, they talked glowingly and frequently about about their time at Holden uh, throughout the year. So not only did I come to start to to think about uh, the work that I would end up doing uh, in my time uh, as a general volunteer, I also became aware of, of Holden. Now I'm here uh, talking about the work I'm doing at Holden. So it's commonplace today for scholars to talk about the context in which we're living as a state of planetary emergency. And that emergency is complex. It's one in which uh, there's economic injustice, social marginalization in various forms, and a really multi-pronged ecological crisis, be it massive die-offs, um, we're entering now the sixth great extinction, climate change certainly, land use transformation, all of these things are putting immense pressure on the earth and those issues 
are related complexly to issues of socioeconomic inequality. So this is the planetary emergency that we that we live in. In my time here, we're starting to unpack some of the, the historical roots of that uh, of that crisis, looking at the ways in which it can be rooted historically in the last 500 years of colonial and neo-colonial exploitation, the extraction of materials from the global south um, to to enrich the what scholars would say the core nations, the the global north, European colonizing nations, Western colonizing nations, um, in complex ways over the last 500 years. Right, it's not a, an easy narrative to tell, but that these dynamics have put us on a trajectory towards uh, the planetary emergency that we're in. And also tied to that, and one of the things we'll explore is environmental racism and the ways in which colonial extractivism needed, European colonial extraction, needed to produce anti-Black racism in order to find the labor to carry out the extraction. So in other words, we needed cheap labor, like we, European nations, colonizing nations needed cheap labor to extract the, the goods of the earth to enrich themselves. And what is cheaper than chattel slave labor? And well, you can't, you can't force a human being into that. So you have to dehumanize in your own mind the people that you want to reduce to labor. So it's at this time that the production of anti-Black racism starts to emerge and really becomes calcified in, in our world as a, as a worldview, right? As an ideology, as a, an ideology in the Marxist sense, as a lie, an obfuscation. So we're looking at all of that, which is a lot in and of itself, but then we're asking, what can the Christian imagination say to this? How do we view this in light of the Christian imagination? What we say about who God is and what God desires for the world, for humanity. And so there, we're also telling the story of salvation history. And we're hitting on key points in scripture and interpreting them, the symbols there that narrate the God-saving work in the world. And we're focusing on three key moments, um, if you can call them moments, or each of them are broader moments, but we're looking at elements of, of Genesis, particularly Genesis two through four, the second creation narrative. We're looking at the Exodus account, and then we're looking at Jesus's proclamation of the reign of God, and in particular, the resurrection account in John's gospel. Hope is ultimately found in God, right? If for, for, from a Christian perspective, from a theological perspective. And so we can differentiate optimism from hope. It's we're facing hard realities. It's not entirely clear, I don't think, to anyone how we're going to get through it. I think there, there, there are paths through it but they're all very complex and it's not clear that we can steer the ship the right way as it were. But that's just all that to say, there are possibilities going forward and ultimately for the Christian imagination, right? Hope lies in God, that God is, is with us in this and that God is working to transform and heal all things, even those that are beyond human capacity, beyond our own individual capacity, certainly. And so it's always grounded in hope. What I begin with when we look at the story of salvation history in Genesis 2 is it suggests that there is an implicit Imago Dei anthropology there. Let me explain what I mean. Mm -hmm. There's a, an implicit 
image of God anthropology. So in Genesis 1, we're told explicitly the human person is created in the image and likeness of God. In Genesis 2, God gives humanity the vocation of gardener. Genesis 2.15, God sets the human person in the garden to serve and care, to, to cultivate and care, to serve and preserve the soil and all that comes from the soil. So the symbolic vocation of gardener. Well, God is first imaged as gardener in Genesis 2. God plants the garden, allows the animal, forms the animals, forms the human from the soil, and allows, in accordance with God's wisdom, brings all of creation to flourish within the garden. It's precisely, and then calls humanity to image God precisely through serving and caring for the soil and all that comes from the soil. Again, it's precisely through love of neighbor and love of earth, which are as closely related as the human is to the humus, as the human is to the soil, as Adam is to Adam, to use the Hebrew. It's precisely through love of neighbor and love of earth that the human person loves God and images God most fully in Genesis 2. Now you could follow that through, that, that narrative then through Genesis 2, uh, Genesis 3 and 4, where the introduction of sin into the world leads to fractures of relationships, not only between the human and God or human and neighbor, but the human and all of creation as well. And so God's work then at saving the world, reconciling the world to God's self, saving the world from the powers of sin is one that's necessarily going to heal not only the human's relationship with God or human relationships with other human beings, but the human relationship to creation itself. Intrinsic to God's saving desires and God's saving work and our call to cooperate in the work of salvation or witness to God's saving desire for the world is love of God, love of neighbor, love of earth, cultivating care and serving and preserving the soil and all that comes from the soil. And now the, you know, the hard work of discernment is what does that look like amidst the planetary emergency? I will just point out one other key moment in the story of salvation, right? In kind of bookend Genesis, creation accounts in Genesis, is in John's gospel, the resurrection account there. Two points to know about John's gospel right from the outset that are key. First is that John is intimately familiar with the theology of Genesis, and particularly the creation theology of Genesis. That's most obvious right away in the prologue to John, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is clearly echoing the, the first lines of Genesis, the first creation story in Genesis. So John's intimately familiar with the theology of Genesis. And the other less obvious point, but well-known to Scripture scholars, is John is John regularly uses irony to make theological points. So when Caiaphas says, when um, the leaders of the community are plotting to have Jesus turned over, Caiaphas says, it's better that one man be sacrificed than like, for the sake of the community than the community suffer. And now theologically for John's community, that's going to have an ironic point that it Jesus dies for the sins of the world. For Caiaphas, right, it's let's just scapegoat somebody and save ourselves. So John uses irony. Okay, so those are two points. Genesis is important for John. John uses irony. 
In the resurrection account in John, we're told that when Mary goes to the tomb, we're told it's the first day of the week while it's still dark. Both of those moments call to mind in different ways. Immediately, the creation story in Genesis begins while it's dark and we have the days of the week. And in fact, on the first day of the week, there's the light. Mary's about to go encounter the one who John has told us is the light, right? So she goes to the, the tomb, which is placed in a garden and only in John's gospel is the tomb located in the garden. And it's, it's, we know that implicitly, we're not told that, that there's a garden there, but when Mary finds the tomb empty, she, she weeps and weeps bitterly and looks up and mistakes and, and sees a person there who's in fact Jesus, but Mary mistakes as the gardener. Well, as scripture scholar like N.T. Wright would say, Mary's making the right kind of mistake. There's an irony operative here in John's gospel, I would argue, where Jesus is in fact the gardener. He's the fulfillment of the human vocation. He's the fulfillment of the image of God. And so John's narration of the resurrection account is the narration of the resurrection as a new creation, the inbreaking of the renewal, the final transformation of all things. And so this then starts to frame. So there's, if there's an implicit Imago Dei image of God anthropology in Genesis 2, we find a commensurate final Adam Christology in Joannine resurrection account. Jesus is the final Adam, the fulfillment of the human vocation. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to view the links in the description for more information or visit our website to find out more about the village. We hope you will make a pilgrimage to Holden. Blessings and peace to you.